Well, if you look at the big picture of Romans, Paul starts by talking a lot about sin, about how we've all fallen short, about the need that we have for a Savior. And from there, Paul moves on to salvation, how we find our salvation in Jesus. And then he ends with some discussion of different ways that we can serve the Lord. In the last couple weeks, and still today, we're in the sin section. So we've seen how Paul talks about how everybody has given up on serving the true God and exchanged God for different other gods. People have turned to all kinds of immorality and injustice. And Paul says that all the people out there, all the nations, all the Gentiles, they've all turned from God. And then Paul goes on and he talks about how all God's own people, how the Jews, how these people who God had worked with in a special way, how they also had turned away from God. And then here in chapter 3, we see Paul pause for a moment, answer a couple, of, a couple objections, and then keep on talking about how God's own people have missed the boat. Let's read from Romans 3, verses 1 to 8. What advantage, then, is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, they have been entrusted with the very words of God. What if some did not have faith? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every man a liar, as it is written, so that, when you, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I am using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as we are being slanderously reported as saying, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result. Their condemnation is deserved. This was an interesting text to work with this week. And it will be interesting to work through together tonight also. So I recently read a book called Going Postal. And as you may guess, it's about a post service. And the main character of that book is a convicted con artist, and he's given a choice between being hanged until dead or taking over as the postmaster of this large city. And you can guess if the choice is between being executed or taking a job, that the job is not very desirable. This is a huge city, but the whole postal force is a total of two people, headed up by junior postal inspector Grote. And Grote's an old man, well past retirement age, and very much the worse for wear. And as this new postmaster goes to the post office and he meets with postal inspector Grote, he hears that the post office used to be a proud institution. They had five deliveries a day to the whole city and hundreds of employees. But then everything went badly wrong and things just spiraled out of control about 20 years before. But for quite a while after things had gone bad, the mail kept pouring and pouring in. So this whole post office at the center of town is filled with mail. People kept bringing the mail to the postman, and so they just dropped it in the post office and left it there. The main hall is filled 10 feet high with undelivered letters, and all of that has now become the lodging place of wild pigeons and other strange beasts, 
And every single room in the post office is packed from ceiling to floor with mail. Level after level, room after room, the whole place is full of mail. Now, most of the post office employees had wandered off or retired, but Grote, Grote had stuck around. And he still followed all of the post office regulations. He kept the inkwells filled exactly to the right amount. He lit all the lamps at the proper time of day. He did everything he was supposed to do inside the post office to the letter of the law. But for decades, he had no thought of delivering a single letter. And when the new postmaster asked why they can't just throw out some of the older mail, Grote says, oh, no, sir, that would be interfering with the post. We can't be doing that. True postmen wouldn't do that. And reasonably enough, the postmaster says, well, and holding on to it for 20 years isn't interfering with the mail? Well, replies Grote, it's not so much interfering with it as just delaying it a little bit. The important thing is that we keep the post office going. Now, there's no particular usefulness to that mail anymore. It's just sitting there, and Grote wants to keep it sitting there because it gives him an identity, and it keeps him going. He's not really interested in delivering the mail, but he keeps hanging on to it so that he can still be junior postal inspector. The mail can sit there and collect dust and pigeon droppings until the end of time, And he's happy just to follow the post office regulations and keep track of the mail that's in his possession. Now, Paul here in Romans 3 is saying that the Jews in the Old Testament and leading up to Jesus' time were a bit like junior postal inspector Grote. They've been entrusted with these messages to deliver to the world. They have valuable documents and good news to spread to the peoples of the earth. But instead of going out and delivering the message they've been entrusted with, The Jews held on to it as their special possession. They were like postmen hanging on to letters because having those letters, having those things they had been entrusted with, that made them feel special. It gave them an identity. It made them different. Now, in the first two verses of our text for tonight, Paul insists that there is great value in being a Jew still. There was great value to being part of that people that God had chosen and God had worked with for century upon century. Paul emphatically says there is much value in every way to being a Jew because they have been entrusted with the very words of God. Now, Paul probably had two things in mind there, a broader meaning and a narrower meaning. First, Paul is probably thinking of the whole story of God's work with his people. Later in Romans, in Romans chapter 9, Paul mentions that the Jewish people were blessed with the covenant, with the law, with the temple, with the promises of God, with the patriarchs, with Abraham and the other great ancestors of the Jewish people. And finally, they were blessed with Jesus Christ, the Messiah, who was a Jewish man according to his human nature. The Jewish people had a huge history of God working with them, and that was a great gift. And more specifically here, Paul is probably thinking of the Old Testament, of the Hebrew Scriptures, the place where all those stories were written down, the documents that gave the Jewish people their identity, this testament that was a gift from God to his people. The great advantage of being a Jew, says Paul, is that they were the people who received God's revelation. 
The Jews were uniquely privileged, uniquely entrusted with God's word, and that was a great advantage over all the other nations of the earth. But then pretty quickly, Paul goes back to discussing how even God's people, even the Jews, fell short. And in verses 3 and 4, he wrestles with the faithlessness of God's people and the faithfulness of God. What if some of them didn't have faith, he asks? Will their lack of faith nullify the faithfulness of God? Does the faithlessness of God's people undo the faithfulness of God? Now, the word entrusted in verse 2, when it says that the people were entrusted with the words of God, is pretty similar to the words for faith and faithfulness that Paul uses in verse 3. God entrusted the Jewish people with his words, and they were supposed to be faithful with them. Now, we can understand faith in some different ways. One way is just to understand it as sort of basic low-level agreement, kind of like a yes vote. Yeah, I agree that's true, and that's the end of it. But the meaning of faith here is much, much deeper than that. If you're faithful to something, that means you hold on to it. If you're faithful, that means you stick around until the job is done. And if you're faithful, you do what needs to be done. So when Paul is talking about the people's lack of faith, he's not saying they didn't know the truth. He's saying they didn't commit to the truth. He's saying they didn't live according to the truth. He's saying they didn't do what God entrusted them with doing. Jesus once told a story about a master who went away for a long trip, and he entrusted several of his servants with some goods to do something with while he was away. And when he came back, a couple of the servants said, hey, you gave me 10 of these talents, unit of money, and look, I invested them, I worked hard, I have more to give back to you. Another servant had gotten five, he'd worked hard, he had something to give back to the master. But a third servant had just taken the money, taken the gift that the master had given him, and he'd buried buried it in the ground. He was scared of displeasing the master, he says, he was, so he just kept the thing safe. He buried it. He made sure no one else took it. And the master was enraged at that servant. He insisted that the servant had been given that gift to do something, to do anything with it, instead of just keeping it buried and keeping it in his own possession. So the master had that worthless servant thrown out because he had failed in the task entrusted to him. The Lord didn't give his words to his people for them just to sit on it. The Jews were entrusted with messages from God for themselves and also for the world. They had been entrusted with God's word to be God's messengers to the world, and they had failed in that trust. Instead of taking that tremendous treasure out to the world, they had buried it. They had hoarded the good news. They had kept it just their own possession. And so Paul is asking in these verses, did did the people's faithlessness to the task, did their disobedience to God, did their lack of true commitment, did their lack of bringing God's word to the world, did that make God's work fruitless? Did that mean that God himself was at fault? Did the people's lack of faith nullify God's faith? fullness. And of course, Paul said, absolutely not. Not at all, he says. Let God be true and every man a liar. God has remained faithful to what he promised, even when his people 
were faithless. Even though God's people fell short, God did not. Even though God's people didn't bring his words to the world, God still sent his ultimate word. He still sent Jesus Christ to bring salvation to the world. God is still faithful. In the Old Testament, God promised a savior, a king, a Messiah. And in Jesus Christ, God fulfilled that promise, even though his people hadn't been faithful. But at the same time, God is also faithful to his promises of judgment. When God gives instructions and his people fail to obey them, God does follow through on the promised consequences. In the Old Testament, we often see God promising blessing to the people for following him and consequences to the people if they disobey. And God is faithful to both sides of his promises. And that's why Paul quotes Psalm 51 there to say that God is always right when he speaks and he always prevails when he judges. Now in these first few verses of Romans, there's good news and there's tremendous challenges for us as God's people today. The good news is that God does fulfill his plans and promises. Even if God's people fail, God will succeed in carrying out his plans. Even if we fall short, God brings blessings to the world. Even when God's people bury the promises that they've been given, God stays true to his word. None of us accomplishes the whole task that God has given us. None of us are perfectly obedient or totally perfectly in tune with God. All of us at some point serve other things instead of serving God. But God remains faithful even when we fall short. Now for us today even, there is great value to being part of God's chosen and beloved people. We as God's people today have been given great gifts by God, including his word to us. But we can't just kick back and relax in what we've been given. We have been given a message to deliver. Truly following God means growing in grace and it also means growing in the good news and spreading the good news. We can't just sit in church and feel good about who we are as part of God's people. We need to grab onto the power of God for salvation and share it with the world. That's the gospel we depend on. The good news that Jesus Christ has come and has saved the world is something that we have been entrusted with as a message to bring to the world. So Paul deals with this faithlessness and faithfulness objection in verses 3 and 4. And then in verses 5 to 8, he brings up another objection. And these verses are about unrighteousness and righteousness. And honestly, those three or four verses there are probably about the toughest to translate in any of Paul's letters. Commentators cannot agree on exactly how to divide them up. The big point is clear, but the details are a little bit hard to nail down. But the objection there basically seems to be, if I sin and God punishes me, then that gives God a chance to show that he's righteous. So why should I be punished? It's a little bit like a criminal going before a judge or being caught red-handed by a police officer and saying, well, criminals like me are the reason that you have a job. So instead of arresting me, you should just be grateful and leave me alone. Because if it wasn't for me, you wouldn't have a job. Now, obviously, that logic doesn't fit real well with reality. And it's so twisted, it's a little bit hard even to know where to start. 
Well, once when I was in high school, I was driving to a meeting just a few blocks from our house, and as I was approaching a light, it turned green, so I kept going through the intersection. But someone coming from the other direction turned in front of me totally unexpectedly. I saw him going way too late for me to stop, so I hit my brakes, and then I hit him. Now, thankfully, I managed to be going pretty slow, so the airbags didn't go off, and there wasn't massive damage. And we drove over to a parking lot nearby. A couple people who'd seen the accident pulled in after us, and we got parked, and then the other guy got out of his car, and he just started yelling at me. He was kind of an older gentleman, and he had no problem what he thought, telling me what he thought of stupid, young, punk drivers who just went through intersections when they weren't supposed to. Why in the world had I hit him? And so on and so forth. Now, I was pretty shocked by this because I always understood traffic laws to say if two people had a green light, the person who was going straight had right away over the person who was turning left. That was just kind of how I thought it worked. And incidentally, traffic laws agree with me on that. So I said something like that, and the guy didn't want to hear it. He just kept on going about how he'd been at the intersection first, and I should have stopped and let him go, and what was I thinking? So I just gave up and let him talk himself out. And as he was going off in front of me, I heard the witnesses to the accident behind me whispering to each other and saying, what is he talking about? Obviously, he shouldn't have gone. I don't know what that guy is thinking. So I just let the guy have his say. When the police officer showed up, he stalked over to them and gave them the lecture he'd given me, how this stupid young guy didn't know how to drive, and so on and so forth. And then he went on to describe what had happened, and he stood back in triumph. And I said, yeah, that's pretty much what happened. He turned left in front of me when I had a green light, and I didn't have time to stop. And then one of the police officers kind of took the guy aside and said, hey, you know you're the one who's going to get a ticket here, right? He had the right of way. You didn't. And the guy just didn't believe it. When we had wrapped everything up and I was leaving, that self-righteous guy was still standing there arguing with the police officers that they didn't understand. I was supposed to get the ticket. He was the one in the right. It was just crazy and frustrating. And if you want more details, you can talk to my mom after the service because it was her car. And Anyway... Sort of an awkward night to tell that story. But anyway, even though I wasn't the one who got the ticket, I also was standing there feeling pretty self-righteous because I wasn't the one who'd screwed up. But I was also the one who had screwed up. If I had been paying more attention, if I had been driving more defensively, if this or if that, I maybe could have avoided the accident. But that's the thing about people. We love, love, love feeling self-righteous. We love placing the blame elsewhere. We love finding somebody else who can be in the wrong. And whether we're really right or really wrong about a particular question, even if it's a battle we should be fighting or not, we love having that self-righteous feeling in the middle of an argument. And in these verses, Paul is responding to someone who showed up and is yelling at God with that kind of self-righteous feeling. You get the sense that Paul has had these arguments with people, and he doesn't even quite know how to respond. It's ridiculous. The whole attitude, the whole argument is wrong. You get the sense that someone who would go to God and try to argue their way into God admitting that he's wrong and they're right just doesn't get it. It's not right. It's not about what's right and wrong even for this person anymore. It's about, I want to do what I want to do, and I want to get away with it 
no matter what someone else says. And Paul has no patience with this argument, and he says that God has no patience with it either. You can't go to God and say, my sin shows off how righteous you are, so you shouldn't punish me. My doing wrong gives you a chance to show off your judgment, so you shouldn't punish me. Besides being confusing, that's a way of thinking that places the ultimate value on selfish desire and on our own self-righteousness. This is at the core of our sinfulness. This is seeking freedom from God. This is going to God and being fumingly self-righteous instead of going to God with open hands looking to receive the righteousness of Christ. The problem here isn't really the specific ideas. The problem is the heart behind the ideas. The problem is the heart that wants to be in the right no matter what. This is just one more example of people turning away from God and turning to something else. And whether we turn away to other gods or to self-made religious rules or to self-righteousness, our minds and our hearts love to go wandering to other things away from the Lord. And no matter what our favorite sin is, God is right to judge sinful humanity. God is always righteous in judging evil Everybody, everybody sins and everybody needs to be remade. Everybody needs a new heart. Whether you start out as one of God's people or not, Paul is saying, you're not getting it right if you're depending on your own righteousness. There's a lot of value to being part of God's people. There's a lot of value to being born into God's people. There's many great gifts to be had there. But if you sit on those gifts... If you sit on your own righteousness, if you sit on this is who I am, that's no good. And if you take the next step and you start blaming God for your troubles and trying to put him in the wrong, you're really missing the point. So Paul faces up to some pretty loaded questions in this section, and he gives some pretty pointed answers. Is there any advantage to being part of God's chosen people, and specifically at that time to the Jews? Well, yeah. God's work is never wasted, and his gifts are always valuable. But what if people misuse those gifts? What if people are faithless? Does that mean God isn't faithful? No, God is always faithful. And when it comes down to it in the end, are you self-righteous or are you interested in God's righteousness? Can people go to God and say, hey, get with the program. You, You owe me. I'm right, you're wrong, come on now. How long can someone stand in front of God and argue and argue and argue and plead and scream about how righteous they are? No one will ever win that argument. And that kind of self-righteousness, that burning anger that just has to be right, that's an anger that burns up the world and burns us up. But when we can lay that down, when we can depend on God's faithfulness and God's righteousness given to us in Jesus Christ, he puts out the fires in our life and he delivers us from all evil and all sin. May we always, always depend on the righteousness of our faithful God.